0: So don't answer this out loud, but what keeps you up at night? And what can keep you from being kept up at night? The reformer John Calvin would say, the knowledge of God's providence. The understanding that God sees, preserves, and in wisdom and love cares for his creation. Calvin wrote, Gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience and adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future, all necessarily follow upon this knowledge. Our fears are quelled if we know, even when the world appears to be aimlessly tumbled about, the Lord is everywhere at work. And that has certainly been evident in the story we're following from the book of Ruth. The Lord is everywhere at work. Father, we come before your word now, uh, open its pages to be ministered to by the power of your spirit. Help us to see the message you intend, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple verses from the book of Ruth, if you wanna turn there. Ruth chapter four this morning, Just literally, I guess, three verses, 13, 14, and 15. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13, 14, and 15. Oh, look, this was supposed to be the last day in the book of Ruth, but I don't want to leave this book. And last week, I didn't have anything to do but sit around and not feel well. And as I got better, I, I could dive a little deeper into this thing and realize, hey, We can get two out of this one. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13, 14, and 15. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law... Who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So when we come to our passage this morning. We see the wedding a wedding has taken place, right? Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Now we have noted through this study the brevity of the author and how it is left to us to ponder often the implications of what is written. This is a good reason. When we are reading scripture, to take our time, to read it slowly, to read what is said and to try to understand it, right? We read not for the sake of reading, but for the sake of understanding. That's actually one of the problems with certain reading plans is you get in the habit of reading so that you can tick a box as opposed to reading to understand what the word says, We read for understanding and sometimes we need to slow down. Here's an example of a place in the text where we would be wise to linger for a little bit. Because besides this being a very meager wedding announcement, did you notice that? There's really not much to it. Besides it being a meager wedding announcement, there's something here you might not think about if you move too quickly. And that is the fact that Ruth was from Moab and Boaz is from Israel. Ruth was a Moabitess. Is that an issue? Well, it could be, because marriage between Israelites and Moabites was forbidden. And we would ask, naturally, why was that? The issue was not a concern about mingling races, as some might wrongly interpret it. The issue is about maintaining faithfulness to God. Why does God not want his people Israel to marry into other races? It's because the other races are infamously pagan worshippers, and God wants his people to remain faithful to him. And for an Israelite to marry a non-Israelite, a believer in God to wed someone who does not believe in God or who believes in false gods, would all but ensure the compromise of the believer's faith. This, by the way, is why and any Christian contemplating marriage or who has children or grandchildren contemplating marriage ought to hear this. This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14 says, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? On rare occasions, of course, a believer who marries an unbeliever will influence his or her spouse to come to faith. It can be done. In fact, Peter in his first epistle gives wise advice to believing women who are married to unbelieving husbands, First Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see their respectful and pure conduct. It's possible in some cases for an unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend, or spouse to be converted by the faithful practice of the believing boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. It's possible, but in the majority of cases and in the breadth of my experience, it is the unbeliever who influences the believer away from the practice of his or her faith. I can't tell you how many times now as a pastor with quite a few years under my belt. I have counseled people in dating relationships and people who are ready to become engaged and say you must not be yoked to an unbeliever. I have even refused to do weddings when one is a believer and one is not. Not that I won't go to your wedding, not that I don't want the best for your wedding. I simply cannot officiate and bless that what God has said should not happen. Do you know how many people have come to me and said, but pastor, I think, I think if I date this person, then then she'll get saved. I think if we get married, then he'll he'll get saved. I hope so, but more often than not, that's not what happens. We are not to be unequally yoked. So what, what does that mean, though? How does that work? Not many of us are... Farm hands, I, I suspect most of our experience with yolks are relative to eggs, but the, the yoke spoken of here is a wooden bar that typically joined a pair of oxen together. If one of those oxen were significantly different than the other in terms of strength or stature, the team wouldn't be a good team. They would be in conflict, one pulling differently than the other with greater or less strength at a faster or a slower pace. It would be difficult, if not impossible, for the two of them, joined as one, to accomplish the task. Usually it would be a farming task in that day, right? The task that was before them would not get done, and if it did get done, it would not get done with ease. In the same way, when a husband and a wife are not equally yoked, when they're not on the same spiritually their marriage will struggle to fulfill its purpose and that isn't to say that they'll never have times of happiness or that they won't enjoy each other or anything like that it's just to say that the marriage between a believer and a non-believer can't fulfill its purpose of exemplifying as we know from the book of ephesians the relationship of christ to the church. Such a marriage will not accurately reflect the gospel. And that's what marriage is ultimately intended to do. So don't be unequally yoked. Believers should marry believers. Any young people should think about that when they're dating. Uh, We parents and grandparents want to dispense that advice. Back to our story. What about Ruth and Boaz? Is this a believer-unbeliever type of relationship? Well, was Ruth a believer in God? Not at the beginning. At the beginning, she's from Moab, right? And, and she, she worships the gods of Moab. In fact, Naomi said, return to your house, return to your home, return to your gods. But what does Ruth say? No. I, I want to go with you. I, 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 your people will be my people Where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. It was known in Bethlehem that Ruth had not just come to Bethlehem to keep Naomi company, but as Boaz put it, she'd come to take refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. So she was a believer. She did forsake her false gods to follow Yahweh in Israel. And this foreigner becomes a worshiper of God, and Boaz redeems her. And in marrying her, he takes for himself a bride of non-Jewish heritage. And here in this story, we find more of the foreshadowing seen in the character of Boaz and his similarities to Jesus. Jesus came to preach to the lost house of Israel, the wayward people of God. But he came to redeem more than the Jews, right? He came to redeem the whosoever. That would believe in him, right? John 3:16. He came to redeem the whosoever that would believe in him, to, to give his life a ransom for what? For the sins of the world, to make a way for everyone, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their previous religious experience, anybody who wants to, to be joined to him by faith. In John's Gospel in chapter 10, he's speaking. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees about who is truly of God and who isn't. Actually, this is sort of a struggle that goes back quite a ways to some pretty pretty testy stuff in chapter 8, if you want to check it out. But anyway, Jesus eventually says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have what other sheep that are not of this fold? And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. I have other sheep. The non-Jewish people. The Gentiles, if we use the Bible's terminology. You see, the wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles is broken down by Jesus. And all alike are reconciled to God the Father through faith in the Son. And offering himself for the sins of the world, Jesus, like Boaz, took for himself, listen, a bride from the nations. Indeed, Revelation 5.9 says of Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Which is to say, beloved, that faith in God An inclusion in God's family is not reserved just for a select type or race of people. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book Secular Creed notes that in the retelling of Israel's history, what we find in Matthew's genealogy in the first chapter of his gospel, also in the end of the very book that we're studying now, in the retelling of Israel's history we see that non-Israelites weren't just squeezed in at the fringes of God's purposes, they were plumbed, into the royal bloodline. Friend, it doesn't matter to God where you come from. It doesn't matter to God what your ethnicity is, what your gender is, whether you are rich, whether you are poor. He receives you as you are to make you all that you were created to be. And he is ready to plumb you in ready to graft you in, to adopt you into his family, to save you, and to make you one of his own. And if you haven't made that decision yet, would you make it today to receive what God has to offer, his salvation to you? So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Think, think how far she has come, friend, from the loneliness of, and the worry of widowhood to the promise now of a new marriage with a godly mate. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. We see here in the 13th verse another theme that runs consistently through this little book. And that theme is a deep understanding of the real and the true connection between Creator God and His creation. 23 times, In the 85 verses in this book, God is mentioned. That's a lot. The phrase, the Lord, appears at least 18 times in these four brief chapters, composing a refrain that we are intended to hear, which is the sovereign involvement and activity of God in the lives of his people. In chapter 1, When Naomi decides to go back to Israel after a decade or more in the place to which she and her husband had fled to escape the famine there, it's because the word has come to her, what, that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. In the same chapter, as Naomi tries to convince her daughters-in-law to return to their homes of origin, because every woman in this story now has suffered the loss of her husband, Naomi's loss being the greatest, a husband and two sons, she bids the ladies to leave her, saying, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May the Lord grant you rest. In chapter 2, Boaz greets his workers with a blessing. The Lord be with you. They reply in kind, and the Lord bless you. Same chapter, Boaz learns who Ruth is and says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Little did he know at the time that he himself would be a partial answer to that prayer and blessing. God would indeed repay Ruth for her faithfulness to Naomi, but gi- by giving her a husband whose characteristics were so much like Jesus, which of course reflected the very nature and character of God. And that's Boaz. Boaz. In chapter 3, in response to Ruth's marriage proposal at the threshing floor, Boaz pledges to redeem her, invoking the name of the Lord. In chapter 4, the well-wishing of the elders and all who witnessed Boaz's redemption of Ruth was that the Lord would make her like the great women of Israel. Another answered prayer. And an established house by the offspring that the Lord would give. Look, friend, do you have a a sensitivity to this, a sense of the Lord's intimate involvement in the very details of your life. There's not a crack, not a crevice, not a corner that God isn't looking into, aware of, and sovereign over. He is involved. He cares and he provides. John Piper comments on this theme in the book of Ruth. He says, God the Almighty reigns in all the affairs of men. He rules the nations and he rules families. His providence extends from the U.S. Congress to your kitchen. Let's be like the women of faith in the Old Testament. Whatever else they doubted, they never doubted that God was involved in every part of their lives and that none could stay his hand. He gives rain and he takes rain. He gives life and he takes life. In him we live and move and have our being. Nothing from a toothpick to the Taj Mahal is rightly understood except in relation to God. He is the all-encompassing, all-pervading reality. Naomi was right, and we should join her in this conviction. God the Almighty reigns in all the affairs of men. God reigns in all the affairs of men. Whether we acknowledge it or not. Whether they acknowledge it or not. Yes, he does. And He, in our text this morning, notice it is the Lord who gave Ruth conception. Children don't just happen. And you know what? Conception doesn't just happen. The Bible in Psalm 127 tells us children are a gift from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Uh, Children don't just happen. Parents do participate in the process. Without the process involving two human parties in one form or another, there has really been only one known incidence of conception, and that would be Jesus who was conceived in Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, everyone else is the product of the joining together of human sperm and egg. But much more than this biological reality is a spiritual reality, friend. The Lord is the author of life. The psalmist in Psalm 139 speaks of how he was fearfully and wonderfully made. How the Lord formed his inward parts, knitted him together in his mother's womb, This is one reason among many why we Christians hold such strong pro-life feelings. It's not that we have an interest in telling everybody else what to do or how to live so that they can be like us. It's because we see and acknowledge God's involvement, God's hand in creating every human life. And many just don't see that. So back to the text, it says the Lord gave her conception. Again, maybe this doesn't strike you as particularly noteworthy, right? After all, children are born every day. Lots of children born every day. But we should think about this a little bit. Another spot to linger. Because Ruth had been married previously to Naomi's son. While they were in Moab. And the story doesn't tell us how long they were born married, but it does give us a total stay in Moab of about a decade. And you know what? In however many years Ruth and Malon were married, she never conceived. No kids. Remember, that's part of the plight. Widowed and childless. Naomi and Ruth widowed and childless, and Orpah too. No social security. No no system of support. No jobs available for women to go and make money and sustain themselves. This is part of the plight, widowed and childless. Ruth goes from foreigner to family, from widow to wife, from servant in the fields to co-owner of the fields. Look at this. From childless to childbearing. The heir that had been hoped for and longed for and prayed for is here. A child is born. A son is given. Few things that I can think of evoke more joy in a family than the birth of a child. Those of you who have had the privilege of having children, you know that they are a gift from the Lord. You will likely attest to some pretty vivid memories surrounding your child's arrival in this world. There really is precious little that compares to the miracle of childbirth. And even without Facebook, the news of this little one's birth spread pretty fast. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, without a kinsman, without a child who's going to perpetuate this line And may his name be renowned in Israel. That's what the women said when they heard. Would these be the women who upon Naomi's return wondered aloud if it was her? Do you remember that? Is this even Naomi? The women to whom Naomi testified that her life was bitter. The women to whom Naomi testified that the Lord's hand was against her. Today, the women who heard from Naomi that she was empty... Now celebrate and declare her fullness. Another reversal has taken place by the mercy of God. The Almighty has not, in fact, left her empty, has not left her without a Redeemer. Naomi and Ruth have both found their rest. The psalmist in Psalm 113 was right on. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Beloved, God is faithful and what we sometimes sing in worship, is as true today as it has ever been, as it was in Naomi's day. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. So don't worry, Jesus says. So don't worry, your heavenly Father knows what you need. I hope you believe that. I hope you believe it because it's true. The Lord who directs the affairs of all has seen to it that the needs of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are met. But there's even more to this story. More needs being met than meets the eye. And that, Lord willing, will be the subject for next week as we will conclude. <laughs> Unless I don't feel well. No, we will conclude our study in the Book of Ruth.